Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life. Religion, social justice, and public life from a progressive point of view. Religionforlife.com. Hi, I'm John Shuck. Today I speak with Doug Paget, pastor of Solomon's Porch in Minneapolis, author of Flipped, the provocative truth that changes everything we know about God. He's with me via Skype from Minneapolis. Welcome, Doug, to Religion for Life. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. Tell me a bit about uh, the work that you do at uh, Solomon's Porch and with people who are evangelical and progressive. Part of the work I've started to do um, that we've started to work on uh, in the last couple of years has been organizing um, progressive thinking Christians who come from non-denominational and evangelical backgrounds who um, want to find an expression of their faith that feels like their non-denominational church or evangelical church as opposed to the mainline traditional uh, denominational brands of church. Um, And it's really an exciting project that's going on. There are so many people who folks would look at and think um, because of their style or their approach uh, would be conservative evangelical, but they're actually um, wanting to be and are moving uh, along a much more integrated and and, uh, progressive line. I first heard about you from a guest I had on my show a couple of years ago. His name is Kyle Jones, and, and he was talking with me about a project called Invite an Atheist to Church. And as I understand it, you supported the idea and said it should be a nationwide event on a specific day. I thought it was really cool, by the way. Uh, How did you decide to do that, and what was it like? Sure, yeah. So Kyle uh, Jones, Kyle B. Jones and I um, uh, became friends because I would have him on my radio show um, as talking about um, atheism and uh, a a positive, engaging form of new atheism in in North America that I was noticing was happening, The, the kind of Christianity that um, that I've come out of um, is this sort of emerging culture, Christianity, kind of a progressive evangelical side. And we regularly meet people who are um, experiencing an emerging expression of their own tradition and faith, whether that be a woman named Ani Zanaveld, who runs the Muslims for Progressive Values, or um, uh, Sean Landris, who has a network of emerging Jewish rabbis. And then we sort of stumbled into Kyle and others, um, and he's kind of this emerging culture atheist, um, a, uh, a different kind of atheist. So anyway, we, we had a conversation about this and and um, uh, bantered around a bunch of ideas. And among those was the idea of having uh, invite an atheist to church day, that you would uh, have church communities invite atheists. And I thought, man, this is going to be a great idea. This uh-huh. is super fun. People are going to love it. You can't imagine the kind of pushback that we got from uh, pastors being really uncomfortable about having an atheist in an actual church service. Wow. Like very, and very often these were people who were quite comfortable being in interfaith dialogue or even letting people in their community not have faith directly, you know, but still being part of the community in some positive way. Uh, but boy, to kind of give that that slot, you know, a Sunday time, maybe even a Sunday sermon to someone who is uh, a stated atheist really was hard for people. Uh, I was I was quite surprised by that. So um and I've done a lot of other conversations with Christians uh, of an interfaith conversation, and the, it, things tend to stay open for a really long time until you say, hey, what about inviting our atheist friends in? And uh, somehow the tenor in the room just changes. So it's, uh, there's a really deep bias in, some of our, in, our, in our country, I think, about atheists, especially within religion cult, religious culture. Well, did your church, uh, Solomon's Porch, that's where you interviewed them, did they ha- have pushback too, or they, were they open? 
no, our people tended to be really, really open with that and, and comfortable. Okay. Yeah. But then they even said like, well, this is really unusual, right? Like they even noticed, even though they were open to it, they noticed how peculiar it was and how unusual it is uh, to, to, to do just such a thing. And how many of the people, even at Solomon's Porch, hadn't been in a direct conversation with a public conversation with atheists about uh, what, what it means to be uh, an atheist living in the United States. Um, you know, they've, a lot of people are married to one or something, but then it's just like their wife's opinion or their husband's opinion, you know, or their dad's not much into religion, but not in a way where you talk about it the way you do when you're in a public setting. Um, that wasn't, you know, obviously it wasn't hostile or aggressive or anything, but, but friendly and um, you know, uh, uh, engaging and inquisitive and all. Yeah, I uh, find that this this polarization uh, I find very distressing uh, between uh, uh, Christians and atheists. Just the, what you're describing, I think there there needs to be a way to to build some bridges. Yeah, and I, I really wish it would happen more often. Um, in fact, they've just uh, you you might be familiar with this movement called Sunday Assembly, which is mm -hmm. the you know attempt, and that's and that's a that's an interesting approach um, uh, to it. It to me, it tends to be the kind the things about religion that I don't really find that interesting, which are the Sunday assembly part, you know, so it's kind of interesting <laughs> to me that someone would want just that. Um, uh, but um, I know that a lot of people really find that valuable. And I wish there were more places where you could talk directly and um, in generous terms with one another uh, from religious views and atheist and, and atheist views and, and what it means to be a non-theist versus an atheist. I just think all right. that stuff is super interesting. And, um, I think there's a lot of connection points that help people have faith that's more dynamic and more alive. Yeah. What um, do you think uh, Christians could learn from atheists in particular? Well, I, I think that anytime someone is asked to, um, consider their, their beginning assumptions, uh, that somehow they're uh, they're encouraged then to to hold whatever conclusions they're going to come to at some point in their life with much greater um, with with much greater confidence. So when when you're when you're with an atheist, for a lot of Christians, they have begun with an assumption that God is. And and I actually mm -hmm. think a lot of the work I try to do this in my book Flipped is to have people um, recognize that that. The call of Jesus involves us thinking about God differently, not just not, not leaving their, our notions of God all alone and then only talking about ourselves or our faith, but it really implicates how we see God. I think that's what you see in all of Jesus's parables and everything. He's like, the kingdom of God is like this. If you want to know what God is like, then God is like this, you know, and that's supposed to to push our our assumptions and our boundaries of what we've previously heard and thought and so conversations with especially ones that are healthy and are uh, meaningful with people who have concluded currently differently about god that really puts us uh in a place where we can talk about some of our base assumptions from a new from, from a new uh angle or a new perspective yeah, you write uh, in your book, God does not exist. God is yeah. existence. Right, right. And that's, yeah, a that's, very, that, that's really the whole key, isn't it? I mean, you, you use the phrase from uh, the book of Acts about uh, in, in, uh, in God, we're uh, attributed to Paul, in God we live and move and have our being. And that really is a big flip from traditional understandings of, of God as a being. Yeah, I, I, I very much think so. In fact, I have friends who are, you know, Christian atheists, and what mm. they're arguing is, 
we have to stop believing in the old notion of God that God lives in some heaven and is uh, is distant from us and we interact with God through a transactional process of some variety, right? And I think they're really, I don't use that Christian atheist language in the book, um, but I, I really understand what they're getting at and where they're coming from. And I think there's something quite interesting about the notion of having to rethink and reconsider our basic notions of God. And I think that's what Paul and Jesus are both doing. Um, I, I think if you read the Gospels and even the epistles through the language or through the lens of these are calls to rethink our understanding of God and not just our understanding of ourselves and our faith, you, you end up in a different place uh, when, you, when you've started to say, you know, when Paul is doing that, that very famous sermon at, at Mars Hill in, that's recorded in the book of Acts, um, and the, the, whoever was the curator of the, the gospel or the, uh, the book of Acts, you know, whether it's Luke or some community that put that together, they chose to keep that that section there for uh, a reason, right? Like of all the things you could quote Paul saying, uh, it's interesting that they want to make sure that right in the center of that of that call that Paul is on to invite people into a way of Jesus in the in the world, he stresses this notion that God doesn't live in temples and God doesn't live in heaven as if to be serviced, but we live and move and have our being in God. Because and he roots Paul roots all of that in the resurrection of Jesus, right? That's that's mm -hmm. where all that stuff comes from. And I spend a lot. I, I come on this book tour and talking with people about about the book. They're surprised that you can make an argument for this in God view of the world and the cosmos from a Christian perspective. Uh, and I totally get why they think that that's an odd that's an odd way to to arrange uh, or to talk about it because most Christianity almost demands that you begin with the belief that God is separate from all things. Uh, that's the only way it makes sense, and then Jesus becomes that bridge that connects us to God. And here we go. Now you're into Christianity. Um, but I think, as it turns out, that's not what the earliest Christians thought, and that's not even what Jesus was conveying, uh, that there was something else going on there. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Doug Padgett. He's the author of Flipped, the provocative truth that changes everything we know about God. And the idea of God as uh, a being, a supernatural being, means you have to, as you mentioned, you've got to be connected to, you've got to have these bridges, you have to have these adapters, as you suggested. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it's like a, you have to make these deals with this being, a transaction. Mm -hmm. You talk about transactional religion. You need to uh, talk more about that? Sure, yeah. Transactional religion has been the basis for all kinds of religion, not just Christianity. Uh -huh. This idea that a human being in a particular space and place and time um, has to have some kind of an upgrade, some kind of an addition, some kind of a, of a connection point to the divine. And whatever it is that allows a person to move from a place of being disconnected to the divine to being connected to the divine, I refer to that as that there's a transaction going on. So I use a couple of metaphors for that. One of those is like a cord that connects your computer from the the electricity conduits in the wall to the battery in your computer with this power cord and this adapter. And um, there's a lot of people who feel like that's their experience with God, that their religion or Jesus or some happening is what's necessary to make that computer connect with the power source. But ultimately what we realize then is that the adapter is the most powerful uh, 
part of that whole process, right? Yeah, you just the have institution. your computer. Yeah, what, so that's part of the reason why our institutions have become so important to people because they are, as a, as a Catholic church down the street from where I'm sitting right now, has above its doorway, this is the gateway to heaven. Um, wow. So once you, see, once you see the world through the lens of, look, there's a gateway to heaven that I get to, and for some people that's belief, they have to organize their thoughts in a particular way and believe certain things or that it's a, a, a action that the church does and it could be called a sacrament or something else or that it's some kind of a change in your habit or behavior to prepare yourself to be truly connected with God. Anything that, that engages in that arena uh, I, I think is a part of the transactional system. And, and I try to argue in the book Flipped that one of the things that Jesus is about is trying to help us recognize that we don't need those, tr those transactional processes and systems. Uh, the temple was a, was a significant one in first century Judaism and uh, other, other processes uh, for Paul when he meets the people uh, connecting to God through idols. And they both want to set aside the, the temple. They want to set aside the, the idols. They want to set aside these particular ordinances and practices. And to rather say you live in God, that, that is the provocative message, it seems to me, that you find in the Gospels um, is that there and, – and different traditions have tried to tap into this. You know, Martin Luther's approach to saying this was that it was grace through faith. Uh, that, that you're saved. And, and the, what a lot of people, you know, find value in that, but a lot of other people are like, you know, it's that little through line right there that, <laughs> that kind of makes things, makes things uh, difficult. Um, so I, I'm not suggesting that every human being is God. In fact, that's one of the, that's one of the um, clarifying points I try to make in the book, that rather than thinking that we are God, to understand ourselves as living, moving, having our being in God. So it's not really, um, you know, some sort of animistic faith where you just think that the tree and that, that my body and your body are all gods, but rather we're all existing in, in God and that our connection to God is not really about there being some distance or some falling out or, or some, some separation, but rather we, we live estranged with, with God. You know, we live at, in at cross purposes at times with God. We live um, sometimes in frustration with God and with one another, um, as opposed to being disconnected. And most of us know what that's like, because even though we all live in our own bodies, we also know how easy it is to live at odds with our own bodies. Mm -hmm. You know, we can live in frustration with ourselves. We can sort of ignore parts of our own bodies. We can ignore parts of our own story that we've made. Like we, we understand what it means to, to, to live in ourselves but also to live um, incongruently with ourselves. And so what you're looking for in spirituality, it seems to me, what all people want is to find that holism and that, 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 that integration of one with the other. So it's a bit of a different metaphor of how one lives right and good and well with yourself, with your neighbor, with the planet, and with God than that somehow some of us are connected to God, some of us aren't, and we need to make these connections possible. And I have a little more God than I used to have, and you have a little more than I do. And there's these places where there's where there's portals to be able to be more connected to God, and this place is as a closed off uh, avenue. Like that's just a whole cosmology that I think makes um, makes religion super important to people. Uh, right? If your if your religion can give you the practice or the place or the people who are more connected to God. Um, that's an awfully attractive thing, but, um, those, those transactional religious systems, they, they extract a cost 
Yeah. They, they, do they do it. Yeah. They extract a color. For example, my favorite line in your book is, um, uh, you've never heard a preacher say with all that God has done for you, the least you can do is stay up late and enjoy some pizza and beer. <laughs> I, I love, you, you said you never heard a preacher say that, but now I can say, yes, I have. You said it. Uh, but of course you're flipping that idea that God is always really just ticked off at us. Yes. And, and, and always just expects a little more, you know, that, that somehow you could, you could dig a little deeper. I think that comes out of the chapter where it starts with this song lyric that I heard in my early days in Christianity uh, from a, a singer named Keith Green that said, Jesus rose from the dead and you can't even get out of your bed. You know, this, this kind of thing, right? Like, and that's really, I get that kind of uh, the motivation that's behind that. Um, but boy, uh, it, when you hear Jesus uh, walking about outside the temple in the fields, out in Galilee, and saying to people, the kingdom of God is among you, and saying to people, you are the light of the world. Mm -hmm. To a Jew of the first century, they would have heard that Torah was the light of the world. And it was already scandalous enough that Jesus would claim himself to be the light of the world. You know, the word Torah means light. So you, the, that the Torah was the light that shines on my path and makes my way in the darkness. And then Jesus is like, I'm the light of the world. And then says, and you are the light of the world. You know, it's like some, some Oprah Winfrey episode. You know, you're the light of the world and you're the light of the world. Um, but but that, that idea was so scandalous, so um, like, hey, stay up. God has done everything. There's nothing more you have to do. Stay up, enjoy some pizza, you know, uh, celebrate with your friends. That seems so unusual, but Jesus' first miracle was, uh, as recorded in the book of John, was turning water into wine at a wedding so that people could celebrate all the more, uh, be, you know, and the reason the disciples are confronted with them not following all the Sabbath laws of the day. Jesus says, why would you be living like you're in mourning when this is, this is a time to celebrate? Like there's a, there's, um, a flipping that Jesus wants to do to the entire imagination about who possesses God, who owns God, who controls God. And, um, boy, there's hardly a religion and I don't mean to be hard on religion. I mean, it's, it, it helps people organize to live well in the world. There's no doubt about it, but boy, there's a shadowy side to all of that. That can really be, um, really be difficult for people to, to see their own life as meaningful and as beneficial without requiring some upgrade, some change that's dictated by someone else's standards. Well, you know, the flipping uh, that Jesus did regarding to the Sabbath, regarding to the temple, regarging to all the laws, got him in big trouble. It got him crucified. I mean, you, you do that kind of stuff. Uh, you're messing with the brokerage system. Um, That's right. And so the brokerage system has a lot of interests. So uh, the, the idea of, 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 the, of the prophet, the one who flips things, who gets people connected again, uh, really is a threat to the powers that be. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no one in any religion um, who who hasn't who hasn't uh, who's tried to do that kind of thing to say it's it's more open, it's more beautiful, it's more generous than we're currently doing it. That doesn't feel the pressure of the system saying um, uh, you're 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 really undercutting the entire purpose of this. I remember going through this experience when I was early in my Christianity and. I was talking with people who, for whom um, the, their structure of Christianity was based around people going to heaven rather than going to hell after death. Mm -hmm. And when some of us would suggest that Jesus' agenda for, for people was, was broader than that and different than that, they would say, and 
with all the passion that, you know, that they had in them, they would say, if there is no hell, then what would motivate me to be Christian? You know, and I understand that when people have said yes to a particular uh, worldview and a particular understanding that if that, if that, uh, promise is, or that, that requirement is no longer needed, then they don't know why there's a promise in that faith any longer. And it's really hard for people. And if you've known people who've had to go through a transition Mm -hmm. in their religion from, um, uh, some kind of a threat promise outcome to living in a more integrated way, they've had a hard time figuring out how it makes any sense anymore. So it's one of the reasons I, I, I worked for a long time on this book, because one of the struggles that I was having myself as a functioning pastor and writer and public person was a uh, public Christian person was trying to reconcile what does it, how does the, the life and teachings and, and way of Jesus fit in to this in God suggestion of humanity and all of creation? Uh, like there was a long period of time where I'm like, okay, if I believe this business that in God we live and move and have our being and that God doesn't live in heaven waiting to be um, served by human hands, as Paul would say it, and that we don't live in some transactional process by which there's a needy God that demands that we do more that we don't want to do in order to please God so that we can live with God forever. If that's not our story, I'm really glad about that because that's an exhausting way to live. So I'm really glad that I don't have to live that way. But then it's like putting a puzzle piece, a puzzle together, and you've got an extra piece left over there. And for me, that extra piece was Jesus. And I was like, uh-oh, what do you do here? Because my understanding of Jesus had been as that primary uh, connection point. And um, so what, I, what, I've, what I've tried to suggest in the book is my own process and, and that which I've learned from others about how... Um, Jesus not only makes sense in the in God uh, imagination, but is really the heartbeat of it. And that the in God world makes a whole lot more sense in Jesus's way. And Jesus makes a whole lot more sense understanding ourselves um, living in God than any other way. What you, you talk about, I mean, I resonated a great deal uh, with this book, especially near the end where you talk about freedom. Um, because mm. much of religion is about constriction, but if you mm-hmm. think of, of, of Jesus' message and his mission, it was really about radical freedom, um, mm-hmm. and, that's, and that's scary. Uh, mm-hmm. to, because we want to have somebody, whether it's a, a minister or a law book or whatever, just to tell us what to do. And yes. the, I, that being out there, wow, I, I uh, am able to have this uh, freedom to make these decisions to, to live my life in, in a beautiful way is, is scary. It, it is. It is. And for a lot of us, um, freedom can feel like uh, like the difference between living in a constricted environment of religious instruction, moving into a world of freedom. For a lot of people, feels like I'm going to go from being a part of an us to being all alone. Mm-hmm. You know, they feel like freedom means that you're by yourself, and and that's one of the difficulties that a lot of us have. Is what does it mean to live in personal freedom? and inside of, uh, of a healthy healing community. And that's a, that's a real struggle for us as human beings, you know, to live, uh, free to ourselves and also as a gift and, uh, as a servant to one another. Um, those aren't the, those trade-offs don't, uh, 
they're not uh, they're not always clear and automatic. Doug Padgett is my guest. He's the author of Flipped, The Provocative Truth That Changes Everything We Know About God. I just have a couple of minutes left with you, Doug, but I uh, wanted to talk about a line that you put in there very modestly. Uh, it says, I have rather reluctantly become committed to nonviolence. Now, that is a very <laughs> modestly put, but that is a big flip for a violent age in which we live. Can, can you talk just a little bit about that journey? Yeah, I'll tell you, it has been, um, for me, the greatest impact of seeing um, uh, humanity and all creation living in God is that you you don't get to have good guys and bad guys anymore. Wow. I mean, I should have gotten that from Jesus saying things like, you know, live in the same love that God has for the world and stop making categories of good guys and bad guys, or the way Jesus puts it, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, and that God doesn't keep count of those things. Um, so you shouldn't either. So love your enemies and bless those who persecute you, right? But I'd missed a lot of that. Um, and somehow thought that, well, you know what, we just live in a world where it's required that, you know, there's some kind of just violence or some kind of necessary violence that has to be brought to the world in order to um, to, to, to make all this work and that later some other time we'll live in an age or a time or a heaven where that's not necessary. And that just became unreconcilable for me any longer in thinking about Jesus and, and the Jesus call. So this living in God caused me to say, okay, what does it mean for me to live in a nonviolent way? And that doesn't fit well with my temperament and it doesn't fit well with my past assumptions about uh, what, what allows things to be accomplished in the world. Um, there's still an awful lot of short-term uh, beneficial outcome that people see from using violence. And whether that's physical violence, war violence, uh, 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 personal, interpersonal violence, bullying people, um, pushing one idea over the top of, of the other, all of those are forms of violence. All of those kind of break people down so that they can be used in some other purpose. And that violent act um, is super hard. And so, so that's not only implicated how I think about our country in war and how I think about my own food choices, which mm -hmm. is really hard for me, and how I think about how we should organize our religious communities. Like uh, a lot of religious communities, unfortunately, are structured around a very subtle and low-grade form of violence that... Some people talk, other people listen, some people have religious power, some people don't, mm -hmm. some people can welcome you in while other people have to wait to be welcomed. All of those things um, have a way of saying to someone that your humanity, that you as a person does not carry the same uh, same life and weight in this community as it does for other people. And we have an awful lot of things to look at with that. Um, um, so I've, I've sort of reluctantly found myself in that world. Um, and I, you know, as I say in the book, I, I still do eat meat and I'm seemingly willing to let other people do my dirty work for me. Um, but I'm trying to figure out what that means to live in a way where, uh, I consume animal products in a way that's not violent, but that's, um, a, a, a healthy exchange with, um, with animals and human beings. You know, that's a, it's a complicated thing for me, but I, you know, I spend time now. I don't, I don't, uh, my, my, I have a couple of Jainist friends who really take their nonviolence seriously. And I've tried to take on their practice of not 
uh, of never intentionally killing uh, a living animal myself or even an insect or a bug. And it's just, it's just the weirdest thing, you know. Uh, I won't slap mosquitoes on my arm. I sort of shoo them away. I have to scoop up spiders in the house and throw them outside. I have to, you know, uh, I mean, I still drive down the highway in a car, which tends to do, a, you know, quite a bit of damage to the bug life on the, along the highway. Um, but you know, if I could, I would, I would do it some other way. Um, and I'll tell you that those little practices of starting to notice how easy it could be to just swat and kill or just dismiss and move on and to have to take that seriously, um, is really powerful. Doug Paget, my guest, the author of Flipped, The Provocative Truth That Changes Everything We Know About God. Uh, find out where he's going on his website, DougPaget.com. Doug, thank you uh, for this powerful book. Uh, everyone should pick it up and, and for your work and for being with me today. John, thank you. Thanks for your great radio show. You've been listening to Religion for Life. For links to podcasts, go to religionforlife.com. Find Religion for Life on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is produced with assistance from KBOO, Portland, Oregon, and WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee. Religion for Life is also heard on WEHC, Emory, Virginia, and KZUM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Be well.